there's the, the Battle of Graveline, and, and that is probably the most significant action during the whole of the Armada. You, you see several Spanish ships lost, running aground, uh, catching fire. That's when the Spanish know it's all over. Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we're heading. And it's often violent and generally quite bloody. Hi, Tom. What we're going to do today is look at the Spanish Armada, the ships, the tactics, the commanders, the spying game that went on behind it, the catastrophe that unfolded, and hopefully provide some food for thought and some insights that people might not have thought about before. So that's the goal, and we'll see what happens. Fantastic. Well, it's a story that's familiar to everybody, school children, and obviously there's been uh, movies uh, and so on, not always historically accurate, but at least given us some of the players in this drama. So let's hear what actually happened, and uh, perhaps to start with, why? Why did it happen? Largely because, to put it in the American vernacular, the King of Spain was pissed. He was incredibly angry that his empire was being attacked by English privateers. You had people like Drake, Frobisher, those sorts of characters, Grenville, raiding his treasure ships, attacking his ports, and taking a lot of Spanish gold. That was a large part of it. There was also another part of it, and this was incredibly important, is that he saw it as a crusade. He wanted to bring England back to Rome. It had been uh, under the Catholic Church, of course, under Mary, Bloody Mary, his wife. He thought that now there was Elizabeth I on the throne, uh, that she was obviously, in his eyes, a heretic, a bastard in his eyes too, because she was the daughter of Anne Boleyn. And he saw that as an illegitimate queen, that King Henry VIII should never have divorced Catherine of Aragon. He wanted to get his own back. And so he really went out to pull England back into Spanish control. So was it that it was a genuine holy crusade or was it a political, you know, if you say it's a crusade, you're going to get people to get behind the project in a much more enthusiastic fashion? It was both. I mean, we've seen it in the modern age with jihad. It's a political goal, but it has as a vehicle a religious element, a very large religious element. And if you look at the ships, a lot of them had the keys of St. Peter on their sails or Yezu. It absolutely had a religious dimension. He was serious about it. And that went hand in glove, really, with the political dimension of an emperor, if you like, whose empire stretched from Peru to the Philippines, who felt threatened by a resurgent England who was grabbing at his coattails, grabbing at his funds, and he did not like that. So he, he definitely wanted to apply the stick to England. And don't forget the year before, uh, Drake had gone in to Cadiz and burnt or captured 30 of his galleons, and he didn't like it. 
So did he consider us as a sort of pipsqueaks or were we something that was challenging his supremacy in England? I think at that stage, we certainly weren't challenging his supremacy. He thought we were pipsqueaks, but increasingly effective irritants. He didn't want us in the Indies. He didn't certainly didn't want Drake and Frobisher and the like attacking his ships off the Spanish main. He saw the Americas as his backyard. He did not want a Protestant regime in England taking hold. He was already dealing with the Dutch. Okay, good. So now lurking in the shadows and wonderfully portrayed uh, in that not always accurate movie about uh, Elizabeth I, the spymaster. Oh, yes, uh, Sir Francis Walsingham, one of the greats, the godfather of modern espionage. He is absolutely the founder of the craft. He is a key figure and he's always been hugely respected. He is the architect of so much espionage, black bag operations, sabotage, subversion. He was fighting the corner for Elizabeth and for England and for Protestantism. He had seen the results of the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre in France where the Huguenots were slaughtered, and he did not want that happening in England. So he put heart and soul, in fact, he bankrupted himself trying to save the Protestant side of England. And when he eventually died shortly after the Armada, he was buried at night uh, so that the buildings didn't have to be draped with black cloth that his estate would have had to pay for. Okay, great. And were there any specific techniques that he either invented or deployed that were sort of new, novel, and perhaps used today? Well, let's look at the espionage side of it. He wanted to know what the Armada was up to. So he had ships posing as trawlers going up and down the Iberian coast, uh, looking for evidence of the Armada gathering, wanting to count the ships. There is a record, actually, of someone called Mr. Hunter, a Scotsman, one of his agents being captured by the Spanish. So he was very active trying to find out what was going on. There was also not just the espionage side, there were other techniques that he was applying to. There was uh, diversion. He was certainly in touch with the Ottomans and the Moroccans, trying to get them to raid the Spanish on their soft underbelly, trying to deflect the forces that were gathering on the River Tagus in Lisbon, and ensure that the Armada was not as powerful as it was going to be when it eventually set sail. So that was another technique. And he was quite disruptive. Very. And he was very good at it. Disruption, black bag operations. and What do organi- you mean by black bag? Well, well organisations like the Special Activity Staff, the CIA today, or what MI6 has built up since the 1980s. What is a, ba- a black bag? What, is that the instructions it, 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 or is it somebody's head in a bag? It, it, it's covert operations. He basically applied any technique that could undermine the Armada, ranging from assassination to sabotage. If you want an example of possible assassination, and we'll get on to who replaced uh, this character later, but on February the 9th, 1588, the same year that the Armada sailed, the salty old sea dog, the Marquis of Santa Cruz, who was an extremely capable commander, who was going to lead the Armada, he died suddenly in his house in Lisbon. It's believed that one of Walsingham's intelligences, who was called Anthony Standen, 
who lived under an alias in Tuscany, had recruited a Flemish spy who worked as a servant in the Marquis Santa Cruz's house in Lisbon. It's certainly not beyond the realm of possibility that Walsingham had him knocked off. Yeah. In the same way that later on, at the other end of the Armada, when the Armada was fleeing round the north of Scotland, going round Ireland, there was a ship called the uh, Florencia that blew up in the Sound of Mull. And again, it's always been believed that one of Walsingham's agents, John Smollett, got on board and set a charge on the magazine and blew it to pieces. And they're still pulling up cannon today. So that kind of disruption, that sort of sabotage mission or assassination was certainly within the remit of the great spymaster Walsingham. Yes. Incredible. I mean, if he hadn't been there to advise Elizabeth and to do all this for her, life could be very different for us today. We still be? Uh, oh, he was absolutely as important as Drake, if not, not more so. But because he was in the shadows and because he was never favoured by Elizabeth, she rather held her nose. Um, and also, he had set up Mary, Queen of Scots, for the Babington plot and ensured that she was executed. And that was another reason that Philip felt compelled to invade, in that he he saw this poster girl for Catholicism being executed. And it was Walsingham who arranged that, because Walsingham did not want her to be around as a focal point for any possible Catholic uprising, should the Armada land, or should the Armada become a serious threat. Okay, so the Spanish Armada, what was it? What did it comprise of? The Great Fleet, as some called it, comprised about 130, 132 vessels. The numbers on paper never quite tally with the numbers that actually sailed for so many reasons. But the reason they were such a threat was because you're talking about a big fleet, you're talking between eighteen to 21,000 soldiers on board, 8,000 sailors, 2,500 cannon. It is a huge fleet. Is it a fleet that's been redeployed from its usual activities of toing and froing to the Americas, or is it an additional? Oh, a lot of them were nows, caravels, transport ships, huge transport ships uh, that were used from the uh, uh, trade routes, on the trade routes from the Americas. You also had four galleasses, giant galleon galleys with slaves at oars, and they came from the Mediterranean and could possibly have provided good manoeuvrability when the rest of the Spanish ships didn't have that. So there are a lot of ships involved. The difference in the ships is so staggering. If you look at the average size of English ships, probably about 400 tons, four to 500 tons. The Spanish ships, like the Baptista or the San Martino, they were anywhere up to 1,000 tons. So they were huge, but they, they had different ways of operating. The Spanish, in the same way that they fought with galleys in the Mediterranean, they saw their ships as basically infantry castles, fortresses. And so their role was to grapple, they might fire a broadside, and then the infantry would rush and take over the ship that they had just grappled with. And the English fleet, because we didn't mention how many they were. Well, the English fleet, as again, estimates vary. Some people put it as high as 190, but many of those were very small 
tiny ships and rather insignificant. But the last thing they wanted to do was grapple with the Spanish. They didn't fight in the same way. They simply wanted fire broadsides and keep well away from the Spanish. Otherwise, they would be, to put it one way, they'd be utterly screwed. Yeah. And so on the Spanish and English side, we have various commanders, certainly on the English side, famous names that every small child was taught, certainly when I was at school, Drake, etc. But uh, let's start with the Spanish. Well, the Spanish ended up, once the Marquis of Santa Cruz died suddenly, inexplicably, they were left with the Duke of Medina Sidonia. He was a landlubber, a courtier, a huge landowner, one of the richest men in Spain. He had no real understanding of the sea. He wasn't like the Marquis of Santa Cruz, who was, as I said earlier, a salty sea dog. The Marquis of Santa Cruz had attacked English privateers off the Azores in 1582 and absolutely malleted them. Okay, so he knew his onions. He certainly did, whereas the Duke of Medina Sidonia was a total amateur and out of his depth. He was also totally against the enterprise. Yes. He, he, he had contacted Philip and said, I don't want to do this, and Philip had completely ordered him Why? to go ahead with it. Why would he? Because he thought that he was a trusted courtier, and yeah. that was his role. And given that this was a religious crusade, it was the duty of anyone who believed in Catholicism to do his bidding and go and get England. And was he, Philip, convinced that he had God on his side and therefore, you know, even if he didn't have the the commanders with the ability, he had... Uh, he, was that well, in his mind, he had might and right on his side, so he was going to, he was going to get it done. And, and Philip, of course, believed that he had the Duke of Parma uh, in Flanders and along the beaches of Dunkirk and towards Calais, uh, had 30,000 troops available. And that was the plan. That was the plan for the Armada, the 30,000 on board the Armada, t- to sail up the channel, to meet up with the army of uh, the Duke of Parma, uh, who would get on board barges and hook up and then sail for England. And this was the worry for the English. They didn't know where the Armada would land. And again, one of the things that Walsingham was desperate to find out, they didn't know where the Armada would land in Plymouth, whether they would go round the Isle of Wight, uh, enter the Solent and take over the Isle of Wight and use that as a base, or that they'd land in Southampton, um, or go further around. They just didn't know what would occur. How did uh, Walsingham get his information in in quick enough time? Oh, he had boats sailing up and down, and 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 the Armada was a slow beast. Right. And so, I mean, a man on a horse could get the message back and, and, oh, they, and, they, and, they, and they lit fires and stuff. Well, I mean, Walsingham had 80 horsemen at his London pad uh, riding out all the time, uh, couriers taking messages all the time, boats leaving all the time. So he was at the centre of the web. And when we talked about disruption and, and trying to divert the Armada, he was certainly in contact with uh, Justinius, of NASA, the the Dutch uh, commander, and his fleet of flyboats, making damn sure that the Duke of Parma was never going to get his army off the beaches of Dunkirk. A, a flyboat is what, just a small, like a frigate, is it? it no, smaller. It's a shallow draft, shallow draft vessel, but it could have absolutely laid waste 
to any of the barges, the undefended barges carrying Spanish soldiers. Okay, well, they would just just go in with a grape shot and yes, they'd go in apart. with they'd go in with anti personnel cannon and and absolutely wreak havoc. So, so those were the two rival sides. The difference in ships, difference in tactics. Well, we, 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 yes, we 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 started with the um, the Spanish commanders. We just need to mention the English commanders. Yes, you you have the Lord High Admiral Howard of Effingham, uh, who was uh, related to the Queen of and a courtier, and then of course Com- you, a competent individual. Uh, he was competent, and he he comes into the picture after the Armada as well. He 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 certainly knew seafaring. You had other very competent commanders, of course, Vice Admiral Drake. And there was Drake sitting at Buckland Abbey, uh, his home in Devon, overlooking the River Tavy with a boat there ready to take him down to Plymouth. He was waiting for the, for the Armada. He was waiting for news. He had sailed off the Spanish main. He had this amazing buccaneering spirit. And this spirit, this sort of enterprising spirit that you can see in Hawkins, that you can see in Frobisher, that you can in Grenfell, you you can see that in all those English commanders. And it's one that travelled two hundred years on. You saw it at Trafalgar. Uh, and this um, this spirit is it something to do with one of the few ways of getting ahead? Yes, it, it's always been argued that if you go on to Trafalgar, the reason that Nelson's navy was so successful is that the commanders were essentially middle class. They weren't landed aristocrats. Medina Sidonia was, was an landed aristocrat. So by definition, he was defensive. Go forward again 200 years to Trafalgar, and you have men who wanted to make money by seizing prize, by taking ships. And Drake was exactly the same before that. At, at Trafalgar in 1805, the only man who was court-martialed for not following Nelson's navy was an aristocrat commanding HMS Britannia, who shortened sail and didn't get to the battle in time, which is probably why Britannia only lost 10 men during the Battle of Trafalgar. His crew probably didn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably right. But, but, but going back to Drake... He, he he had this amazing capacity, this piratical mind, went out of its way to seize Spanish prize. One of the things he did, he was probably the inventor of the famous Q-ships of the First and Second World War, armed ships posing as merchantmen and acting as lamps for the moths. Yes, and, and lolling and, around and then revealing their guns when the... Yeah, yes, Drake used to tow barrels in the water behind a ship to slow it down so it looked like a laden merchantman. Then he'd cut the barrels and turn on the people who were coming for him. And if you look at some of Nelson's commanders later on, whether it was uh, uh, people like uh, Cochrane, for example, who was leading attacks along the south of France. It's that commando spirit that that to go in hard and to seize the day. That is exactly what the commanders at the time of the Armada, the English commanders, were like. They they weren't afraid of taking risks. Richard Grenville, had, uh, who's guarding the Western approaches, once took to a raft in order to board a, a Spanish ship and surprise them that way. So that's who we're dealing with. Um, and uh, I've got a little note down here, Rosario. 
Yes, well, that was the uh, flagship of the Andalusian squadron and carried about a third of the Armada's treasure. And who should switch off, snuff out his stern lantern, turn his ship, the Revenge, head for it, board it and take the prize, but one Francis Drake. Yes. So, again, he was he was just following his instincts. And because he did that, uh, he um, he ended up rich, as did the Queen, but it did actually scatter the English fleet and slow them down for a day as they pursued the Armada. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So yeah. sh- should we get back? Okay. To well, we could go back to the Armada sailing. Yeah, the the, sh- the ships and into the tactics. Yeah. So the difference between the ships. Well, we've mentioned that about the the size of them and the speed, I guess, of them. Our ships were twice as fast as the Spanish ships. Yeah. Yes, I mean they they were they were much faster, smaller. Some of them came below. I mean they they were less likely to be damaged by cannon fire simply because they went below the the gun decks of the Spanish. Yes, and they were very manoeuvrable. So we have the commanders, and we have uh, an idea of their setup in Spain and in England. What happened when the Armada set sail? The Armada set sail in late May, uh, depending on the Gregorian or Julian calendars, so we don't want to get mulled up with that, but it was essentially late May. And they set out from the River Tagus, from Lisbon, headed north, headed for England. They rounded Cape Finisterre, and that's when they hit trouble. There was an almighty storm. They were blown off course. Those who found anchorage in the north coast of Spain suffered yet more desertions. And those desertions had, had plagued the Armada right from the start. And again, Walsingham was involved. Back, yes. in, back in Lisbon, he had uh, put it about in uh, prophecies, apparently by Spanish soothsayers. He had pamphleted uh, all the ships uh, saying that anyone who went on the Armada was doomed. So there yeah. were massive desertions back in Lisbon. North coast of Spain, there were even more, to the extent that Medina Sidonia ended up having to basically press gang local peasants who had no knowledge of the sea uh, on board just to add hands to the deck, if you like. And uh, so it wasn't looking good. And Medina Sidonia, who was extremely gloomy about the Armada by this stage, must have thought, we are doomed. And he was right. Well, and also, if you have a commander who's got no faith in the operation, I mean, it seeps down to every level, doesn't it? It does, particularly those ship commanders who were far more hopeful when the Marquis of Santa Cruz was going to be their admiral. Uh, They they really would not have been pleased having Medina Sidonia in charge. When the Armada sailed on, when it reaches the Lizard, so uh, now we're in, uh, this is Cornwall, or off yes, the coast yes, of Cornwall. Yes, it, it, it hits the lizard, is sighted around uh, the 20th of July. The Armada takes on a defensive formation, and it does so for, for many reasons. They know that the English fleet is out there, that Drake has managed to get his ships out, Howard has got his ships out, some say between 50 and 60 ships. Drake takes about a dozen uh, to uh, seaward, uh, because the, the, what they really want to do is have the weather gauge. They want to be on th- the other side of the Armada. So the Armada is hemmed in, can't manoeuvre, and the English ships can come in, fire their broadsides, and essentially 
herd the armada on. So the the weather gauge is you have the wind blowing, then you need to be there, and then the enemy need to be beyond you. Is that the way? It's wind. So the wind is blowing you towards the enemy. It's being nearest to the wind. It's being on the side that gets the wind first, if you like, so that you can come in fire your guns, and move away sharpish. And the Armada has taken on this crescent formation, uh, defensive formation. It's one used by galleys in the Mediterranean. And again, it just shows that Medina Sidonia was no seafarer. So you have the the main galleons at the tips of of the crescent and in the middle. We mentioned the Battle of Lepanto in our uh, podcast about the siege of Fort St. Elmo. And I mean, that was all galley. Well, and, 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 and it was all infantry action. And yeah. that is what the Spanish were hoping, that they could simply take on the English and through force of numbers among their infantry, take the ships out. And there were some great English ships. They had names like White Bear, Swiftsure, Dreadnought. Many of those names, not White Bear, but many of the others, uh, uh, have been used by the Royal Navy ever since. Well, the Dreadnought class in the Second World, First World War, the beginning of the was was the class that everyone, every nation aspired to. Well, it? and there's a submarine class, the Dreadnought class, and that was overtaken then by the Swiftsure class. So it, it, those names resonate and, and certainly have a, a sort of historical thread mm. throughout the ships and submarines of the Royal Navy. So you've got the Armada travelling on, being herded and punished by the English. And we're sort of heading in the direction of Isle of Wight. Yeah, they're heading eastwards and there are various skirmishes off the Edison Rock, uh, off Portland Bill, south of the Isle of Wight. Uh, Drake tries to push them onto the shambles, the the outcrop uh, beyond the Isle of Wight. They are, as I said, terrified that Medina Sidonia is going to sharply turn his fleet and find anchorage on the Isle of Wight. And when I was writing The Thriller Realm, I had a a Spanish agent, an Englishman, uh, get off on the Isle of Wight and travel to London to kill Elizabeth I. And again, Walsingham, because he was up to those sort of tricks, would have been very worried that there would have been reconnaissance parties being put ashore, uh, which is one of the reasons that Lord Howard was, was really on the coastal attack. And and so there were moments when he got sandwiched between the, the shore and the Armada and was in a tricky position because yeah. Drake would come in and then fire at the Armada. One of the things he did, of course, was that there were four galleasses, those giant ships, half galley and half galley. Drake simply depressed his guns and shot the oars off the galleasses. Yeah. So they were in a difficult position uh, and they do, were up th- against masters. Do you think that the English, that Drake and Howard and so on, had they a plan worked out or were they, were they um, you know, with their experience, just seeing what would happen and then make the most of it? And, or was the plan, we need to push them through the channel and out the other side? They, they had a plan. And the main part of the plan was really to push the Armada on but to try and prevent it hooking up with the Duke of Parma uh, at Calais. So as to push it out, not necessarily to sink it, or, I mean, they would do as much... They they probably knew they weren't going to sink it. There wasn't a single ship sunk at this stage by any English action. And, of course, you had people like Henry Seymour and William Winter up uh, near the Sussex Downs, ready 
to block the path of the Armada as it headed uh, for uh, Anchorage, um, trying to hook up with the Duke of Parma. So that was really the plan. So they, yeah, they, they've moved up past the Isle of Wight, and then this is the moment where Sidonia decides to anchor his ships on the French coast. He anchors his ships in the Calais roads, um, not right inside the harbour, but in the approaches. And that is what gives the English the idea of sending in eight fire ships. Uh, It's easy to get the ships in to an open position. Again, the wind is behind the fire ships, so you can send them in. Are the people on the fire ships? They would have sailed them in as close as they could and then got off into longboats and got away. But they would have lashed the tillers and set them on a bearing into... And you're talking about a lot of Spanish ships, and that's a lot of tar, a lot of wood, a lot of canvas. If there's one thing that sailors of that age hate, it's fire. It's fire on board. You've also got... Uh, the Spanish who are used to the Dutch and their hell burner ships, which are gunpowder ships. So they don't know whether there's gunpowder on board as well, which could explode. And then you have real chaos if that happens. So a lot of the ships, this is, we're talking around 28th of July, a lot of the ships cut their anchors. Some leave in good order, haul up their anchors. Others just cut their anchors and go. And once you cut your anchors, you've lost your anchor, you're doomed. You don't have a spare anchor. No, no. They're, they're heavy pieces of kit and there isn't room and there's nowhere to go. You, you, you won't find a port. You can't stop. <laughs> you're, so you you're, have you're, to you're, go home, really. You have to go home. And it's while the uh, Spanish ships attacking, uh, trying to form a formation again, wondering what they're going to do. There's a there's a chance they might end up in Hamburg and regroup and refit, but Medina Sidonia knows at that stage he's not going to be able to hook up with the Duke of Parma and his forces. And that army of the Duke of Parma that's waiting on Dunkirk and Calais is already reduced to about 16,000 men by sickness. It's not this 30,000 paper army that that one thinks about. So everything they have on paper, both the armada and the army, it's not what it seems. It's it's not what it seems. And also you have that Dutch fleet of flyboats going up and down and preventing them leaving. So there is just this mismatch. It's flawed from the start. It's a bit like Hitler's Operation Sea Lion wanting to invade England. I think if you span on centuries ahead, I think Churchill probably knew that Hitler was not going to be able to invade England because the Germans had no concept of amphibious landings and their barges would have been equally vulnerable, not to Dutch flyboats, but to the Royal Air Force and to the Royal Navy. So we, we are in the luxurious position of having the channel, having a sea between us and the continent. And that was always going to be the fly in the ointment for Medina Sidonia and the Armada. 
Is there actually, once the ships are attacked by the fire ships of the English and panic and carry on their panicked progress up the channel, is there an actual battle, a sea battle, or are they just shoved out the end of the channel and uh, oh no, go there, for there, home? Oh, no, there's a, there's a big engagement. There, there's the, the Battle of Graveline, and, and that is probably the most significant action during the whole of the Armada. You, you see several... Spanish ships lost, running aground, uh, catching fire. That's when the Spanish know it's all over. There, there is one moment during that battle, and it, it was recorded, of an English ship coming alongside a Spanish ship and an English sailor jumping on board to board it uh, in, in haste and enthusiasm, the ships drawing apart and him being left on board the Spanish ship and obviously being cut to pieces. He clearly but, um, wasn't at the briefing earlier on. <laughs> <laughs> Plainly not. And here we have a reading of that very moment from James Jackson's Armada novel, Realm. Cowards! Protestant whores! Lutheran chickens! Never before had the English sailed so close and never had the taunts of the Spanish crews borne such rage and misery. At point-blank range, the squadrons of Drake, Hawkins, Frobisher and Seymour sidled in to deliver their broadsides and manoeuvre to leeward. Everywhere was smoke, and everything was commotion. In the centre, the San Martin of Medina Sidonia sacrificed herself to the pummeling shot, the captain-general placing his flagship to draw fire away from the regrouping Spanish fleet. It was a valiant and thankless task. With him were others, a few brave outriders to the storm. Admiral Ricalde on the Santa Ana, Leva on his Santa Maria, and three Portuguese galleons, turning to wind in support of their chief, loyal to the end. Grapples flew and missed as another English warship skittered by and released its ordnance to concussive effect. The vessels juddered in the aftershock, one giving and the other collecting the English crews steadying their guns for the reload and their Spanish opposites already dead. Enemies were a mere fifteen feet apart. More smoke swelled in the space between them, obscuring the broken timbers and crumpled gun cradles and the trauma wounds to a hull now dressed with human remains. A second English galleon lined up. Surrender to us and we will spare you. An English officer his sword drawn, leaned from the maintop and shouted his opening bid to the rearing deck across from him. Maybe the Spanish had endured enough, would prefer the certainties of an honourable defeat to the horrors of further combat. From his vantage, and where the wind scraped hollows in the whitening mist, he could view the piteously maimed and dismembered strewn about the upper surface. He called again, Your duty is done! Prevent this needless slaughter! Lay down your arms and strike your flags. His offer was considered and rejected, the answer arriving in a patter of shots that burst the doublet of an Englishman in a vulgar spray of crimson. He sagged and fell ungainly from the mast. The deal was off. Below, the matches were put to powder fuses and the muzzles flung their solid shot. It was an incident repeated in a hundred actions, a single episode lost within the maelstrom hole. Two adversaries scraped sides, a pursuing ship playing too close and grazing the San Mateo, a fleeting kiss between rivals. 
In the blood fury of that instant, an English sailor found he had leaped aggressive and alone to the Spanish vessel and was abandoned to his fate. The casualties for the English through the whole of the Armada period is probably about 80 to 100. It's, it's, it's tiny. The English ships continue to hound the Spanish. They come in close at Graveline. They, they fire all their shot. They run out of shot and powder. So most of them end up having to go back to port to refit. The Spanish continue. They're chased up to the Firth of Forth, and then the English, who don't really know the waters uh, above the Firth of Forth, just slip back. So they're chased out of the channel, and they basically turn north in the North Sea, and they and their plan is to get home to Spain by going over the top of Britain. Yes, and their pilots and navigators wouldn't know that neck of the woods very well. They're not experts in longitude, of course. They don't know, really know where to turn. And they are hit by huge storms. And but as, it's the summer. But you get massive summer storms. And particularly then, they were hit by these freak storms. And they're in trouble. Again, estimates vary on how many were, were lost on the Giant's Causeway going around Ireland. They say maybe about 20 with another 15 lost at sea. It's a lot of men. So, so in fact, the journey home is 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 more deleterious to the to the Armada than the actual battles that were fought with the English. Far more. That's why a medal was struck. The wind blew, and we were saved. So they're being chased uh, around. Well, no, they're no longer being chased. They're being chased now by the weather, and they come around the top. They then head back towards Spain down the side. Do they go down the Irish Sea then? Or? They go down the west side of Ireland. Oh, west. Uh, going down, manoeuvring in the Irish Sea would have been very tricky for them. So they go around the west coast of uh, Ireland. I've mentioned already the explosion aboard the Florencia that wrecked that ship. So you still have Walsingham's agents doing nefarious deeds uh, against the Armada. Does, it, does that mean that the, the instructions to the nation, well, obviously not the Scot- but, but to the Irish as well, was if you see these ships and they come on the land, you're to hand the men over or you're to kill them? or what? Forget the handing them over. They were slaughtered. Uh, there were a few prisoners taken um, and some of them were smuggled away uh, by the Irish who commiserated with them or on their sides. But the English were very active in tracking them down and butchering them, uh, those that got ashore. So if you had survived a shipwreck, you weren't lucky to be coming ashore. Yeah. Uh, some, were, some managed to get back through Scotland. Do you think that was an instruction or just the way people felt? I mean, was it like, don't invade these islands or you'll get the chop? It, 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 it just would have been known that that's what was expected. Yeah. And, I suppose there uh, wasn't any value in, 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 in ransoming them. Well, maybe some of the... No, there was more value in taking rings and gold and anything that was washed ashore. Yeah. And people didn't want to be invaded by Catholics. And it was definitely seen as a threat and an invasion strategy by the Spanish. And so fire was going to be met with fire. So you are talking about half the ships or even more, half those 130 ships uh, foundering and sinking with the possibility that over 20,000 of the 30,000 men on board uh, were killed. And eventually they come back to the continent in dribs and drabs. Then 
sickness hits them. So you've got 10,000 men left, and they're hit by sickness. So Scurvy, uh, cholera, typhoid, what? Typhus. And typhus is certainly what hit the English. Uh, in fact, it, it was a very sad story after the Armada because hundreds of English sailors died from typhus. Quite a few people at court thought this was actually a rather good thing because it meant you didn't have to pay them yeah, uh, because yeah. they weren't paid until they were thrown out of the Navy. So yes. if they died from typhus, that was no bad thing. Is that bad water? Typhus was a very common disease on board ships. It it's, comes from close proximity, lack of hygiene, uh, clothes that aren't changed because it's, it's carried by lice. Right. So that's how they would have found it. And, and, and so many died. And it was such a parlous thing such a parlous state they found themselves in, that it prompted people like Drake to set up the world's first naval charity as a result to help those sailors, their families, and those impoverished uh, by being uh, thrown out. Fantastic. Well, I think we've pretty much done it. It's only really a question of postscript, whether any a loose sense that we should talk about, and also what was the uh, effect, what what did it mean once the Armada had been chased back home? Well, it was obviously a blow to Philip, but he actually tried again, and that fleet was uh, destroyed by bad sea states as well. So he didn't have a lot of luck there. The English, the following year, 1589, tried to attack Lisbon, led by Drake, and that was a disaster. So the usual skirmishing continued, but it did mean the end of any real invasion strategy, coherent invasion strategy for centuries to come. So although it was really the weather that did the job, it has become of huge historic significance. And I think every schoolboy and girl uh, knows the Armada, even if they know very little other history. It's, yes. the Amada, it's the Amada that, that is up there. Yes, definitely. And it would mean that the Protestant, the, Re the Reformation uh, movement, would have an island off the north coast of Europe, which was a reservoir of, of support for the movement on the continent. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. It, you know, it, without it, that, would they have, would, would, could it have been that the Catholics, the Habsburg Empire, could have maybe shoved uh, the Protestants into the sea and to the North Sea and, and uh, won it all back? It certainly would have been a blow to the Protestant cause if England had fallen to Spain. It certainly improved the standing of Elizabeth after the Armada was scattered. It was seen as God's victory. It was seen as a victory for Protestantism. Uh, Elizabeth really became Gloriana after that moment. And you see her speech at Tilbury in August. Heart of a king. That's right. I mean, some of the speech might have been doctored, but, but the mm. essence of it reflects and captures what Elizabeth was trying to get across, that she was unbeatable, that she was in charge, she wore the armour, and she could beat the Catholics and Spain. And this was really the rebirth, the renewal of Protestant England. As a postscript, there might be a couple of other little points to tie up. What would they be? 
I think the first one is to do with an individual called Francis Limbrick, because he is symptomatic of what were called Hispaniolated Englishmen, uh, people who had been turned by the Catholics and fought for Spain. He's a fascinating character because he worked as a pilot taking the Armada up the channel. He survived the carnage, got back to Spain, and years later, he was caught spying for the Spanish on the Jamestown settlement in Virginia, that small colony of 100 or so Englishmen uh, in the wilds of Virginia uh, that had been founded uh, on the James River. And he was caught and uh, he was brought back on a ship called the Treasurer back to England, which carried Pocahontas and her child, uh, no less. He was hanged from the yard arm within sight of the shore of England, probably a welcome to England package for <laughs> Pocahontas. But he, he was very much of his time and reflected these vagaries, these conflicts of interest, the religion that was involved. Religion trumped his loyalty to his own country. Oh, it did, yeah. in the same way that you had the English regiment uh, fighting in Holland on behalf of the Spanish, uh, yeah. from, from which, of course, Guido Fawkes, Guy Fawkes was drawn from a few years later for the gunpowder plot. Yeah. So you, you had these people who saw their loyalties to their faith rather than to the nation. And if anything, Limbrick was trumped by this new rise in patriotism that came about with Elizabeth. And another little postscript that uh, turned up in our researches for this. Oh, yes, that would be the revenge. And it's always been very dear to my heart, that ship. She wasn't always seen as a, as a lucky ship. She had Drake's run, revenge. Drake's revenge. She, she had run aground. There, there had obviously been typhus. And by the time that she uh, was caught off Flores in the Azores, she was quite an old ship. But she was involved in one of the most spectacular suicidal uh, naval actions that this country has ever seen when Sir Richard Grenville commanded her off Flores in the Azores, part of a, a slightly larger squadron of a few ships. The Azores uh, is in the middle of the Atlantic. Yes, right? yeah. and it was a sort of midway point for the Spanish treasure ships. So Grenville and Lord Howard again who commanded the, the small squadron, were there waiting to pounce on the next flotilla of Spanish ships carrying gold from the Americas. And they, they were actually quite ill by that stage, a lot of the crew. They were on shore. They were in a bad state. They had been sitting around for long enough when suddenly over 50 ships were spotted coming from the east. And they were in turn ambushed by a fleet coming from Spain. In a way, the English had overestimated how the Armada disaster for the Spanish had set them back. They thought that the entire Spanish fleet was out of commission, but in fact it wasn't. So this vastly superior Spanish force appears from the east. Howard takes his ships off, but Sir Richard Grenville turns the revenge, the little revenge, and heads straight for the enemy. On his own. On his own. And 
you can wonder why. You can. It's 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 not a bad exercise to wonder what motivated him. And I think partly was that he'd missed out on the Armada. He'd been guarding the Western approaches. The Armada had slipped by. Drake got all the Drake got all the glory and of course all the treasure. So Richard Grenfell was left with nothing, and he he probably resented that. And of course he was he was commanding. The Revenge, the famous flagship of Drake during the time of the Armada. Was Drake dead by this time? Drake died later on in the 1590s, so so he was still alive, but he was he was elsewhere. There was Grenville on his own, and he thought, this is my moment. So he attacked, and he fought for between 12 and 15 hours, it's believed, fought through the night, was circled by Spanish ships. He set several on fire and destroyed them. In the end, he was mortally wounded. His ship really had no ordnance left, but he did give an order for his men to blow up the ship. And he said, that it's not going to fall into the hands of the Spanish, but his, his men don't do that. He dies, the revenge is captured, and then shortly afterwards is sunk by a storm. But it was a sad postscript to an amazing story surrounding that ship. Excellent. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Tom. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck.